If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Battle of Waterloo in 1815 was a crucial moment in the Napoleonic Wars, but has also gone down in history as a key date in Britain's national narrative. Dr Luke Reynolds has researched how Waterloo came to be remembered in this way in his book, Who Owned Waterloo? Battle, Memory and Myth in British History. And David Musgrove called him to find out how people continued to fight over the memory of the battle long after the battle itself was over. Now, Luke, to kick us off, all the ABBA fans who are listening to the podcast will obviously know that at Waterloo, Napoleon did surrender. But could you give us just a little bit more about what happened at Waterloo? Just a very quick synopsis of the battle, just to remind everybody what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So Napoleon escapes Elba, where he's been exiled after his abdication in 1814, and basically does a triumphal re-entry across France for gathering armed soldiers with him as he is. Uh, but he knows that he's going to be up against the Allies, in this case represented by the Anglo-Dutch under the Duke of Wellington, the Prussians under Blücher, and then a little further away, the Austrians and the Russians. And he knows that he's got to strike quickly if he's going to have any chance of holding on. So he marches right for the Allies, who are at this point up in what was then the Netherlands, but what is now Belgium. And he's trying to split them. He's trying to get between Wellington and Blücher. And basically what happens at Waterloo is Wellington chooses a supremely excellent defensive position and holds it. 
and stops Napoleon until Blücher and the Prussians can arrive. And the way I usually phrase it for my students is that the, the French dream of the Hundred Days was crushed between the hammer of the Prussians under Blücher and the anvil of the Anglo-Dutch under Wellington. To just get into things straight to the heart of the matter, why do we remember Waterloo today more than most other battles of the period? There was a lot of fighting going on, but Waterloo is the one that we continue to return to. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a quarter century of near-constant warfare here. Basically, it's that we are... There's two answers to this, and they're tied together. The first is that we are culturally conditioned to seek out satisfying finales, epic conclusions, denouement. Think about how many reviews of popular culture you've read that criticize something for, quote-unquote, not sticking the landing, right? It's great in the middle, but the ending disappoints. Waterloo could have been designed by a modern focus group as a perfect finale. It is the three great captains of the age meeting, in the, in the case of Wellington and Napoleon, for the first time. It is a single-day battle with a definitive outcome. And the other answer which feeds into this is that it ends it. It ushers in a long European peace, and therefore there's no other battle to supplant it. It just keeps being that great finale, and therefore it is sort of enshrined into memory in a way that, say, Borodino or Austerlitz or Jena or Leipzig are not. So that's a really helpful way to just to think about it now. But going back to 1815, obviously people then didn't have the benefit of, of knowing what was going to come and that it wasn't going to, there weren't going to be further battles that, uh, that might overshadow it. I wonder what was the first draft of history? How was Waterloo recorded in the immediate aftermath of the battle? The first access that the average person has to this is the dispatches, you know, the sort of the reports from the generals. And in the UK, we're talking about Wellington's dispatch, which arrives in London on the 21st of June, carried by uh, Major Henry Percy, who lays it at the feet of the Prince Regent and is almost immediately rewarded with the Order of the Bath and a Lieutenant Colonelcy. It's published the next day, June 22nd, as an extraordinary edition of the London Gazette. Prussia is getting the same thing from Blücher's dispatch. France is getting it in a slightly less welcome way with news of Napoleon's retreating army. Now, Wellington knows full well that this is going to be the standard, that it's going to set the tone. We know this because he does a couple of things that are really crucial. Number one is that he writes it from the village of Waterloo, and he makes it very clear that that is where he's coming from, which is, of course, why it's known as the Battle of Waterloo in the English-speaking world. In Prussia and a few other places, it's called the Battle of La Belle Alliance, which is what Blücher suggested it be called, because it is an alliance, right? It's right there in the name. But Wellington knows he wants a British victory, so even though he is relatively kind to the Prussians and generous to the Prussians in that dispatch, he still names it Waterloo. It's a remarkably short document. It's four pages, and one of those is entirely killed and wounded officers. The description of the battle itself is limited to five paragraphs. So we're talking about something that gives an overview, that gives a summary and a precy, but is designed perfectly to whet the appetite without bringing in a lot of the detail. And so immediately after this is published, the UK goes Waterloo mad. They, they sort of this Waterloo mania. And every newspaper is looking for further details. And the next thing that we get fundamentally is, a, you know, sort of letters from soldiers. And these are usually letters that aren't written to newspapers. They're letters that are written to friends and family, and that that friends and family then pass on to newspapers to get some feel of it. And they're really interesting because they very much emphasize British ownership. 
They often don't even talk, mention the Prussians. And uh, they even go further and privilege their individual regiments, right? Because they're, they're sort of looking for their own... They're bragging. And, and in fairness, the soldiers don't know that this is going to be published nationally. They think they're writing to their father or their mother or their best friend. And, you know, generally, if you're talking to your friend versus if you're talking on national news, you're going to be a little bit more braggadocious. You mentioned then that there was a sense that the people weren't the sort of downplaying the role of, of the Prussians. Was, was that a deliberate ploy from the start? Were people looking to, to big up the British side of things? Very much so. Yeah, incredibly so. Again, you know, t- going back to Wellington, right, with Waterloo versus La Belle Alliance, early civilian accounts and then officers' accounts that come in the 1830s all push for a British narrative. It is almost immediately transformed into a national, a British victory rather than an allied victory. The artwork that is produced often puts the Prussians in the background or eliminates them entirely. The toasts at the Waterloo Banquet that will emerge, Wellington hosts, are entirely based on British victory. They usually mention the Prussians once, and that's to toast Sir Henry Harding, later Viscount Harding, who was the British representative to the Prussian army at the time. You go forward as quickly as 1817, when Waterloo Bridge opens, there are Prussian and Hanoverian and Dutch flags there, but they are heavily outnumbered by the British, and in fact, they're, they're almost fully erased from the commemorative artwork that emerges from that bridge opening. So this is almost immediately a British victory in the eyes of the United Kingdom. So that's interesting. Actually, it would be useful just to remind us of what Prussia uh, was. Um, and, and while we do that, I wonder, perhaps you could um, say, what was the Prussian response to that? Well, that presumably they were annoyed to read and hear that their contribution wasn't being given due credence. Yeah, so Prussia starts out as a very powerful duchy in the Holy Roman Empire and then in sort of the greater Germanic states. Uh, and it will be the center of what will become Germany. It is Prussia that, that under, the, under the leadership of the Kaiser Wilhelm and Otto von Bismarck, the Chancellor, sort of absorbs the shattered remnants of the Holy Roman Empire into a Germanic state in the 1870s after the Franco-Prussian War. But basically, it is, it is the center of what we think of as modern-day Germany. It's actually fundamentally quite Eastern in what we think of as modern-day Germany. But its capital was Berlin, much like modern-day Germany is. And it was one of the great powers in sort of post-Napoleonic or even Napoleonic Europe. The others, of course, being France, Austria, or the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, Russia, and Britain. In terms of, yeah, the Prussians are a little gobsmacked, I think, at first. They can't believe what's, what's sort of going on here. And then there's this sort of just like, okay, well, the British are going to do what they want to do, and we're going we're gonna to push back. You know, they, they continue to write their histories, and they continue to refer to it as La Belle Alliance. We have a La Belle Alliance Platz in Berlin. They go into their own thing. But the crucial thing you have to remember about uh, Prussia and, and sort of Germanic history in this period is that Waterloo isn't their big battle. Their big battle is Leipzig, because Leipzig is the one that liberates Prussia from Napoleonic control. That's the one that wins them back their homeland. So that's their big Waterloo. And so that's what they tend to commemorate more than any other. Obviously, they're not best pleased that the British are sort of taking full credit for Waterloo, and there are absolutely examples of scholars going back and forth, and even fistfights on the battlefield of Waterloo itself from tourists sort of arguing who won it. There is the help that because the Prussians have Leipzig, Waterloo is a little less contested than it otherwise could be. 
we'll come back to the Battlefield Taurus in just a second because that's very interesting. But so, so to get back to the narrative, we've got the the initial dispatches from the leaders. We've got these letters coming home from the from the soldiers, from the veterans. When do people start trying to write sort of definitive historical accounts? Was there a rush? Who tried to write them, and to what ends? So there is there is an immediate rush, although I would hesitate to to call it a, an immediate rush to be definitive. It's more about just sating Waterloo mania, right? These are people who recognize a market when they see one. And there's absolutely this lust for this in the United Kingdom. Our first accounts are written by civilians. The first one that is written and published was compiled by a woman named Charlotte Waldy, who's a member of the Scottish gentry. She was born in Roxburghshire. And she happens to be visiting Brussels with family when the campaign occurs and takes the initiative to record her own narrative. Uh, It's about 40 pages. It's a remarkable piece of writing that really shows the confusion on the civilian side. There's even reports that the French have won at one point. They're all freaking out. But she does this narrative, and then she compiles it along with everything else she can find. So Wellington's dispatch, Blucher's dispatch, all of the lists of casualties, descriptions of the battlefield, all of this. And she puts together this volume that is published within a month of the battle and is so popular that it goes through 10 editions in two years alone. So that's kind of that shows the level of interest back home in this. But let's go back to the battlefield for a second because you made that interesting comment just now. And there's a fascinating quote in your book that the first tourists arrived at the battlefield of Waterloo before word had even reached Britain of the victory. So that's an amazing thing to think about. And and I guess that that relates to the fact that Brussels is actually quite close to the battlefield, right? Yeah, Brussels is uh, an easy couple of hours travel uh, at this point from the battlefield and you know, you have to remember that with, with Napoleon's first abdication in 1814, the continent is opened for, to the British for the first time since the brief peace of Amiens in uh, 1802, which is a, a brief sort of peace treaty between Britain and France that doesn't last. And if you go back then, then fundamentally the French Revolution. So there's an entire generation that are desperate to see the continent, and Brussels is close It's a relatively modern city. It gets the equivalent at that point of good reviews. And so there are a large number of Brits that are holidaying in Brussels when Napoleon kicks this off again. And so, yeah, there's this sort of question of what's going on. And once the the news arrives, people are eager to see the battlefield. There's an artillery officer by the name of Mercer who writes his memoirs, admittedly for private publication, towards the end of his life. And he, he records that, that the, um, it's the morning after the battlefield. His soldiers, his artillerymen are still covered in gunpowder and blood and oil. And these tourists show up on the battlefield to see what's going on. He, he likens them to Shakespearean fops in their pristine silks and wools. And they sort of ask him for details and then pick their way across the battlefield. We have other people that show up that collect letters and things like that and just explore this. And this becomes fundamentally what's what's really fascinating about this is that it becomes this sort of cottage industry in and of itself. Battlefield tourism becomes this massive thing and Waterloo is, is perfect for it because it is. It's close to Britain. It is a gateway to a reopened continent. Brussels is very popular. And once the Belgian Revolution happens and Belgium gains independence, Britain sort of looks on Belgium as sort of a miniature Britain, right? It, it's constitutional monarchy. It's got its own mini industrial revolution. People are looking at this and going, this, this country is very clearly following our very wise guidance and therefore we will reward it with tourist revenue. 
And as that sort of pressure to reinforce the British ownership of Waterloo continues, part of that becomes being seen to visit the battlefield, being seen to do Waterloo. Britain basically claims the ownership of this small valley, even though it's in the Netherlands and then Belgium. And so part of their reinforcement of that has to be to continually visit it. There's two things there that we need to pick up. One is just that this this incredible idea of people turning up at the battlefield the day after. That's really that's pretty dark, isn't it? You know, when we think about medieval battlefields, we get we know that people wandered over the the ground, you know, picking up the bodies to get bits of armor and stuff. But that's not what's going on here. People are going just to look and see. So it is just a touristic endeavor. It depends on who you're talking about, right? There are absolutely people who are picking over this battlefield, finding valuable pieces. And there are tourists who are looking, and there are also tourists who are picking up discarded bits of armor and weapons and things like that, because they know this is going to be big, and they want their souvenirs. Performative tourism and the relic trade becomes an enormous part of this. And relics from Waterloo get into such high demand that by the time we get to the 20s and 30s and to the 40s, false relics are being manufactured in Britain in the height of the Industrial Revolution, shipped to Waterloo buried briefly, dug up and sold back to British tourists. I mean, that that's entrepreneurial, isn't it? It really is. I mean, Waterloo, is, you know, if, if you the, the village of Waterloo itself is described by the people who were at the battlefield and before it as sort of this tiny rundown village. And it's made by this battle. It, it becomes a very successful uh, small town that runs off battlefield tourism. Uh, it has guides, it has museums, it has it has everything you want, and it gets richer and bigger because of it. But, you know, yeah, that those first tourists, that is, it's absolutely dark, and it's actually darker than you think, because not only is there the battlefield, but the road that they take to get to the battlefield, the Brussels to Namur Road, which Waterloo is on, they're coming down from Brussels at the same time that that road is chock full of wounded soldiers trying to make their way back to Brussels to get medical treatment. So they're going past wagon after wagon of soldiers that have been shot, that have lost legs or arms, that are slowly dying, all of that. So yeah, it it has got to be really unpleasant. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. 
Yeah, no, that is that is a pretty wild thing to do. Right, and then the other point, and, and this sort of relates to the title of your book as well, Who Owned Waterloo? You made the point there that there was kind of a, a British attempt to actually take ownership of the battlefield. Do you mean that psychologically, or do you mean that politically and physically? Was Were, were we actually, the British, trying to own this bit of, of what is now Belgium? It's a little bit of both, in all honesty. The psychological stuff definitely comes first, and we have, you know, we have these sort of wonderful counts because there are a lot of people who write travelogues of Europe in the sort of late teens, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. And if they visit Waterloo, they record it. They do talk about sort of, you know, how it's their land. There's one that, that pays a, a, a coachman in Brussels to take him there. And he records that the coachman delightedly takes him off to, you know, to the land that Britain owns, effectively. That's not the exact quote. Uh, even even Thackeray, who visits and is determined not to go to the Battle of Waterloo, because Thackeray is, uh, William Makepeace Thackeray is, of course, a contrarian in all things. But he visits and he and he actually notes, he says, it, it, it's, it's scary. You know, let an Englishman walk that field and they will never forget it. There is a little bit of physical ownership as well, absolutely. You know, there is the tourist trade, there is, you know, picking up everything. There's a Wellington elm, which is the, the sort of the tree of observation under which Wellington was said to start the battle, and that is killed by tourist hunters, taking bark, taking leaves. It's eventually turned into furniture, which is, of course, then also purchased and bought for all, all of these tourists. The British and the Prussians basically start, and the, Hanover, and the Hanoverians and the Dutch, uh, start a little bit of a, um, of a memorial war. You know, who's going to put the most monuments up? And then, of course, there's the massive political disagreement over the Lion Mound, which is now the, sort of the major definitive thing of the battlefield. It's this giant conical pyramid erected uh, in honor of, in theory, in honor of the victory, in reality, in honor of the Prince of Orange's wounding. And they build this giant mound and they do it by basically pulling all of the, the soil off the Allied Ridge. And so there is this argument that they're effectively lowering Wellington to raise Orange, to, you know, lowering the British to raise the Dutch physically. Right. Okay. Now, now you mentioned when the first tourists uh, got to the battlefield, they were passing by these streams of, of presumably um, terribly injured, psychologically, mentally, and physically injured soldiers coming back. What happened to those veterans when they finally got home? Were they were they lauded? Were they praised? Were there victory parades? Yes. So uh, they were initially they're initially greeted as heroes. Right. There are impromptu parades. We have mass ringing of church bells. Towns turn out. They give them meals. They give them monetary gifts. We have examples of local merchants providing, you know, half a pint of wine to every soldier in a regiment. But what you have to remember is that a large portion of this army doesn't return home right after Waterloo because Waterloo ends this war fundamentally. Yes, there are a few other skirmishes. The, the Prussians uh, fight the French a few more times, and then Napoleon abdicates a second time. And what emerges is a army of occupation. It's arguably the first sort of modern peacekeeping operation. And that's an army of 150,000 soldiers. Uh, and so a large portion of the British army that fights at Waterloo doesn't actually get home until 1818. And they find a less enthusiastic welcome. Because the end of the war in Britain is marked by effectively an economic downturn, one that's already being faced actually as the war ends. We've got this sort of mini ice age created by several volcanic eruptions that mean very cold summers, very poor crops. 
So Britain is not doing well, and there are there's no Veterans Affairs Department, there's no anything like that. So you know we see a huge amount of unemployment, of poverty, of complete neglect on this. You know, sort of for, especially for those that were no longer in uniform. For those that were, uh, usually we see anniversary maneuvers, and those who were at Waterloo get to wear laurels. Uh, they all wear their Waterloo medals. The Waterloo medal, by the way, is the is the first British campaign medal or battle medal to be awarded to every soldier who fought there, no matter of rank or ability or bravery. So it is. It's the first of, of what we would refer to as the modern campaign medals in Britain. Now, other countries, including the East India Company, had done this for a while, but this is the first one that the British Army does in in Toto. So you know, yes, they do. They do get something, but I think if you asked a lot of retired veterans, they would have rather had more pensions than this small disc of silver. So the veterans they got back. So some of them they weren't particularly welcome because of the difficult economic conditions. Did they find ways or seek ways to sort of co-opt the memory of the battle back into their into their remit and and to profit from it? Because obviously they needed to find ways to support themselves, particularly if they were injured. Yeah. So uh, what you what you have here, of course, is the is the uh, the archetypical sort of question of social class and who's who's active and who's passive in this. And I'll do the passive side first. So largely in terms of the enlisted men, we have people who are trying to make their fortune one way or the other. We have obviously an enormous amount who just disappear from the historical record. They go off and they do what jobs they had beforehand or they just find their own way. But there are some who, yes, try to make their li- live livelihood off of their service. The first Waterloo Museum in London is in Pall Mall, and all of the volunteer—what would we refer to these days as sort of museum docents—the guides and that—they were paid, but they weren't—they weren't volunteers—are wounded soldiers from the battlefield. So we have this bizarre moment where high-quality Londoners, the ton, can wander through these rooms in this in this museum, and on the walls are swords and halberds and you know cannon balls and musket balls and all of this and they have all they have to do is turn around and they can see on the employees what those weapons do to human flesh right right there there are also commemorations things like Aston's Royal Amphitheater's uh, Hippodrama of the Battle of Waterloo and Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens uh, Waterloo Fete that boast that the um that the sort of reenactments that they do are by picked Waterloo men right so they're veterans there and then there are others who, other panoramas and things like that, who offer free admission to those who wear their Waterloo medals, basically to provide verisimilitude. And that actually comes into the other side of this, which is sort of the more officers who are very actively involved in this. Now, again, I, I will presages, right? There are some officers who just don't care. There are some officers who've been fighting for 15 years at this point, and Waterloo is just one more battle in the end of a long slew of them. But there are others who very much do their best to try and co-opt this, and the, they do this in two ways. The number one way, of, obviously, that you would that you would obviously think of is sort of memoirs, right? And there is this this military memoir boom in the 1830s, and they usually use eyewitness accounts to sort of remind people that they were there to sort of pr- prove their bona fides. So they don't use the histories; they relate exactly what they saw and only what they saw sort of a very close-down eyewitness view to sort of say, hey, I was there, I know what I'm talking about. And then tied to that, the other one, which is actually something I find truly fascinating, is that they maneuver themselves to be the arbiters of legitimacy. 
their presence at events, whether it's exhibitions or paintings or plays or hippodramas, is taken as tacit approval that that production is accurate. So they become basically the keepers of the official memory. And if you want to claim that your, your production is accurate or your production is educational, you need the support of the officer class. You used a very interesting phrase there, keepers of the official memory. I wonder, was there anything like an officially sanctioned version of how Waterloo should be remembered? I wonder if Wellington was the man from which, who was the prism for any sort of officially sanctioned version. He absolutely is. Uh, so, he, I mean, it, this is not this is not something that's really done. I mean, it's partially done for him, and partially, very much, he is doing it himself. Right? He is Wellington is a a master of preserving self image and and manufacturing self image in a way that I've only ever seen in a few other people do in the late eighteenth and nineteenth century. Napoleon is another one, and actually, George Washington is a third. They're all three of them are excellent at this. Uh, but Wellington is really dedicated to being the the avatar of victory. And he manages his image extremely well. Every year, starting in uh, 1822, he hosts a grand Waterloo banquet. It's an entirely military, with the exception of the serving, with the, the reigning sovereign, if it's a king, or Albert, the consort, when it's Victoria, and maybe, maybe the occasional sort of ambassador. But other than that, it's entirely a military affair. It's entirely a male affair. And it's there to sort of anchor Waterloo memory. He becomes the ultimate arbiter of whether an event slash depiction is legitimate. And his showing up at one of these things is almost immediately reported. So, so, so for example, he shows up at Aston's Royal Amphitheatre, and the next day their ads are talking about, you know, now with the approval of His Grace the Duke of Wellington. Okay, so there's Wellington, but there's also another famous military figure in the British pantheon around this time, Nelson. Where, where does Trafalgar and Nelson fit into this story, if at all? It does. No, it, it absolutely does. Like Trafal Trafalgar is massive, especially for a maritime nation, right? Trafalgar is this is this incredible event, and it, it is sort of a, a to quote Tennyson talking about uh, Waterloo, actually a world's earthquake. But the problem with Trafalgar is it's in the middle of the war, right? Other battles keep popping up. They keep pushing back. There are successes and failures after Trafalgar in a way that Waterloo doesn't have to face. Waterloo has free reign, right? It has nothing after it in, in the same equivalent. So it does have this point. Also, I will say, especially in theatrical productions, Waterloo is a lot easier to recreate because you don't have that pesky water. Now, that said, on the other side of that, we have Nelson. Nelson's death means that he avoids any of the political controversies that Wellington has to deal with after the battle, right? So he's, because Nelson dies in his moment of glory, he undergoes apotheosis. He's functionally raised to sainthood. And this does, you know, this does play a part. You'll notice, right, that, you know, we have, we have Nelson's column, we have Trafalgar Square, this, this grand plaza in the center of London. There is no monument to Waterloo or Wellington akin to Trafalgar Square or Nelson's Column. And Nelson's funeral is this massive event in the middle of the war to sort of reaffirm national loyalty and national identity while we mourn a hero. There, there was quite a lot of monumentality after the war as well. People, Things were built. You mentioned Waterloo Bridge. You mentioned museums. How far was kind of the physical fabric of Britain dominated by the memory of the battle? 
you know, in a, in a government way, remarkably not at all. So Waterloo Bridge is a private toll bridge that is being built. Uh, you know, it's called the Strand Bridge, and then Waterloo happens, and there's an act of parliament to rename it. But it is still a private structure. All of the museums, all of that are private events. There is talk of a national Waterloo monument that is never built. Where we see monuments to Waterloo, where we see celebrations like that, are driven by the public, are driven by private, right? We have towns creating Waterloo places and streets and roads. We have over a dozen Waterloo hotels and pubs. We have Waterloo ironworks, Waterloo baths, Waterloo glass houses, all of this. But in terms of like official monuments, there is actually a fundamental dearth of them. In a, in a really interesting way. It's one of the one of the best examples I've ever found of sort of the, the nationalization of this victory. Because it's not the government that does this. It's the average people. The one small exception to this are the so-called Waterloo churches. So basically, in the aftermath of Waterloo, in the aftermath of the victory, the Prince Regent says, we need to thank Divine Providence for this. I'm charging Parliament with building a large number of churches because there was a there was a big thing at the time that the population of Britain was growing and the churches weren't enough to, to handle them, right? That we needed more churches. And because of the way this is phrased, these become known as Waterloo churches. And over 600 of them are built. But that, along with, uh, you know, a few minor things, there's obviously two warships called Waterloo. It's largely private ventures. Moving on to a different thing, I wonder if reticence to commemorate and memorialise Waterloo from a from a national perspective was was driven at all by any sense of a concern about commemorating something where there'd been such a big loss of life. I don't know what the casualty figures for Waterloo were. Maybe you probably do, but I assume it was horrific. Was was there any sort of peace movement? Uh, no, it is, it is horrific and uh, made worse by the fact that Waterloo is actually by sort of 18th and 19th century battlefields remarkably tiny and actually contained. It is a valley, so it, it does it, it is sort of it feels compressed in this utterly horrific way. The most vocal objections to commemoration and all of that are actually political. There are radicals who view Waterloo as a conservative victory and nothing to celebrate. The one example off the top of my head that I can come up with for sort of a, what you're saying, right? You know, what, why are we commemorating this huge loss of life? Is actually in relation to the Waterloo churches. And there's a church going up in the forest of beer, and the Berkshire Chronicle comments basically saying, this is in very bad taste. Uh, you know, surely a temple dedicated to the God of peace ought to not have no association with one of the most bloody battles in the history of the world. So there is, there is a little bit of that, but it's, it's nowhere near what we in sort of mo the modern world would, would recognize. Part of that is that Waterloo is fundamentally one of the last times we see an old form of commemoration and celebration. Right. If we talk about sort of war commemoration now, we think obviously of Armistice Day, we think of November 11th, we think of the reigning monarch and, and their representatives laying wreaths of poppy outside of the cenotaph and, and others. We, we think of in the United States, you know, the president visiting Arlington National Cemetery, that sort of thing. There's, it's very solemn. It's very much dedicated to the fallen and to the unknown soldier and lest we forget and all of that. Waterloo is a party. It's a celebration. Yes, almost every one of these has some brief, silent toast to the memory of those who fell, but it's nowhere near what we are used to. 
Uh, and that's a, that's a development that starts after Waterloo with the Crimean War in 1853, and then obviously the First World War. That's when we start to see the democratization of war and the democratization of memory that goes with it, and the sort of this understanding that maybe we shouldn't be celebrating this much death. We should be marking sacrifice rather. Waterloo is the last of the sort of massive military parties in a way. They're just thinking about when interest in Waterloo starts to wane. I'm just like today in Britain, we still our political discourse is still in many ways dominated by the Second World War. Eighty years on, we still look back to that period with with, with a lot of interest. It still seems to to dominate things. Your book goes from 1815 to 52. You mentioned the Crimean War there kicking. Does interest start to wane because Wellington dies? Because another conflict sort of supersedes it? What's, what what happens to, to make people step away from remembering it, if they do? Yeah, no, it, it is. It is the 1850s. Uh, it's the one-two punch of Wellington's death in 1852 and the Crimean War in 1853 that goes to 56. And it's not just that there's another war going on. It's also the fact that, awkwardly, the very people we are celebrating a victory against are the people we're fighting next to in the Crimea, right? The British and the French are allies in the Crimean War. And there's a whole bunch of commentary about sort of, you know, is this politically problematic? Uh, now, the, the Second World War example is fascinating, of course, because... Britain and Germany are allies. They're both in NATO. They both work together. And we still have this sort of commemoration thing and, you know, sort of rivalry that extends especially on sort of the football pitch and things like that. Things have clearly changed in certain ways. But it is it is the 1850s where things sort of start to tail off. And, and notably, it's, you know, as more generations, people, of course, generally don't live as long as they do today. We're only now losing sort of the last veterans of World War II. By the 1850s, we, we've lost most of the veterans of, of Waterloo. There's definitely that aspect. There are obviously exceptions, right? There, there's a huge boost in, in, in the, for the 75th anniversary. There's a special panorama created. The Chelsea Hospital does a big show. Uh, there's basically the equivalent of a royal tournament to celebrate the anniversary. There's also a big centenary planned, but for some reason, uh, every country involved in Waterloo is mysteriously busy in 1915. Not sure why. Can't really figure that one out. No, fair enough. Okay, so to finish up, if I, if I asked you to summarise as succinctly as you could how Waterloo shaped culture, society, politics in Britain for the three, three and a half decades after the battle, how would you do it? For Britain, it justifies Britain's plate. Well, first of all, it symbolises Britain's sort of staunch push against Napoleon for the full quarter century of war, right? Britain is the only ally that is never beaten or subjugated by, by France. It is the constant in that fight. And Waterloo symbolises that for Britain. It symbolises a quarter century of sacrifice and drive. And that is held up as the reason, the justification, the excuse, the earning of British hegemony. Our sons died for Europe, we bled on the battlefield, and that is what gives us the right to play a part in the great nations. It also, part of what gives us a right to police the world and to create the largest empire the world has ever seen. Right? It's held up as one of those reasons for British superiority, along with uh, the Protestant faith, along with the constitutional monarchy, along with the enlightened operation of the mother of parliaments and all of that. So there's definitely that. It's also part of the national creation myth, not of England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, but of a Great Britain, because it's held up as one of those unifying things that forges those four countries into a nation, 
the two traditional ones are the sacrifice of the Napoleonic Wars and the Protestant faith, although we tend to not talk about the Protestant faith when it comes to Ireland. And funnily enough, it's actually sacrifice in the Napoleonic Wars and at Waterloo especially that is weaponized by the Irish as an argument for Catholic emancipation. We fought for you guys. We are, we are equally loyal. We deserve the vote. We deserve to hold office. So it's really, it's those two things. It is, it is a national event. It is fundamentally nationalized to become something that every Briton can be proud of. And it justifies Britain's ascendancy and hegemony. It anchors Britain's imperial century. That was Dr. Luke Reynolds. Who Owned Waterloo? Battle, Memory and Myth in British History, 1815 to 1852 is out now published by Oxford University Press and the paperback edition is set to be published in November 2023. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. 